right, let's go ahead and get kicked off. Uh, welcome to our monthly U.S. Politics and Policy Review, a joint program of the Perth U.S. Asia Center at the University of Western Australia uh, and the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Both of us are sister centers under the, the sponsorship or support of the American Australian Association, and this is a longstanding collaboration uh, that we're delighted to do. I'm particularly delighted to continue the conversation with my partner in crime in this endeavor, Professor Simon Jackman, who's the CEO of the United States Studies Center. Before we continue, allow me to acknowledge uh, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Uh, in the case of the University of Western Australia, the Wajak people of the, the Noongar Nation, if I'm correct, Simon, you can correct me. In the case of the University of Sydney, uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, Though we're virtual, uh, we still want to pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Uh, as we kick off this month's uh, conversation, we're especially delighted to have a, a guest speaker join us. Um, we're delighted to have a multiple award-winning journalist, uh, Ms. Elise Hugh, who is currently an editor-at-large at NPR West in California, also serves as a reporter for Vice News, uh, and is the host of TED Talks Daily Podcast. I had a wonderful opportunity to cross paths with Elise personally uh, when she was serving as the, the, the first bureau chief of the National Public Radio in, in, in Korea, covering Korea and Japan. And I've followed her reporting closely since then. For those in our Australian audience who don't know, the National Public Radio or NPR is the, probably the closest thing the United States has uh, to, to ABC. Uh, and, and in its reporting, it, it really has something that influenced my life, the 25 years I spent in Washington, D.C. It meant that NPR was my companion for my morning commute and my evening commute. And those of you who have dealt with Washington, D.C. traffic knows that means I had a lot of NPR over the course of 25 years. Um, but we're really happy to have Elise with us to, to uh, talk through what is an awful lot of issues impacting American politics and policy today. Uh, you will notice a stray y'all popping out of Elise during the course of it. She was born in Missouri, but raised in Texas. She was a, a, a started her broadcast career in, in, in the broadcast media in Texas, but is also one of the founding journalists behind the online Texas Tribune. Uh, and so we might throw a couple of uh, Republic of Texas questions towards you as well, Elise. But first, delighted to have you with us on the call, uh, particularly from California. Can we just kind of open it up with your initial observations of, of what are you following uh, uh, in the U.S. today? How do things look on the ground for, from, from Los Angeles? Well, thank you so much um, to all of you in Australia for having me. Um, I hope the future is bright since you were already in Friday and I'm still on Thursday night. And I want to preemptively apologize that I am not uh, at my most cogent because it is the end of a long day and my children have just returned to school in real life about a week and a half ago. So that's kind of the state of life here in California, USA, which is um, we have been in rather, I guess, the most draconian and strict lockdowns along, you know, on the U.S. coast, on the West Coast and on the East Coast. And so um, schools have just reopened. Um, primary and secondary school in real life for kids about a week and a half ago. So we are slowly emerging from the pandemic here. And since inauguration day uh, at the end of January, um, it's been rather strange to not have U.S. politics at the top of mind every single day, you know, because the thing about the Trump era was that every day was the Trump show. I mean, he so needed to be the center of attention every single day that our worlds all revolved around him and our attention all revolved around him. And really, um, you could even tell when he was kicked off of Twitter how much, um, and, and, and he wasn't able to command that social media attention anymore. And subsequently, the mainstream media couldn't write stories about his tweets anymore. There was a difference. There was a real palpable difference felt in the amount of attention and emotional energy we were giving um, to the former president. And so um, we have been enjoying in the last few months just this period of rather quiet and um, uh, competent governance, you know, a, a president who seems to seems to display empathy sometimes, you know, as as they should, and then communicates with the uh, communicates with um, the American people in the traditional ways, like press releases and through uh, the presidential daily brief, you know, <laughs> through a press secretary, and so 
a lot of norms that were abandoned in our disorienting previous four years are slowly returning. And um, I think that has allowed for a lot of American voters to sort of take a breath. But at the same time that we're seeing governance and this period of governance, there's this whole other reality going on, right? I mean, 70% of Republican voters believe in the quote unquote big lie that this that the election results are not legitimate. And so, and Republicans really effectively have not uh, offered a counter argument to that. There is no counter argument on the Republican side to the big lie and the people who have attempted to just say, no, the election was real, you know, it, it did happen and Donald Trump did lose, are really getting ousted. I mean, today was Marx in some commentators have observed that today, Thursday, May 6th, marks kind of the capitulation of the Republican Party to a complete cult of personality to Donald Trump, because today is the day that on the same day that both the states of Florida and Texas passed rather draconian voter suppression laws, we are also seeing um, Liz Cheney, the number three daughter of Dick Cheney, um, and very conservative in her political positions, um, being ousted from her leadership as uh, House leadership because she basically <laughs> spoke up against Donald Trump and the big lie. And so um, it's really fascinating that, you know, 70% of Republicans in the United States and just an entire swath, I don't know, 35 to 40% of Americans are living and believing a completely different set of facts and are protected by that in a bubble, right? An ecosystem that was started with talk radio and then grew in the 1990s with Fox News. And so, yeah, I mean, on one hand, uh, it's been pretty impressive to be able to take a breather a little bit and be under a competent govern governance. And on the other, it's very worrying that there is a huge swath of America that uh, believes in a completely different set of information. And I won't say different set of facts because they aren't facts. Well, what a way to start off the conversation. And I want to come back to the quiet and I want to come back to the, the hundred days, but you, you've actually hit on something that is, that is highly topical for today. So let's continue with that and bring Simon into the conversation. Simon, you've done an awful lot of polling work uh, and you, you follow very closely uh, you know, the, the, the trends within the Republican Party in particular. Uh, can you give us your views on what's happening today? I mean, today does seem... Uh, you know, it, it seems kind of trite to call this, you know, the, you know, a turning point of the Republican Party because it's been turning for an awful long period of time. Maybe, maybe Custer's last stand with, uh, with Mitt Romney and, and Liz Cheney kind of standing in the role of Custer. What, what's your view of, of the state of play? Um, I think it's the, the substantive import of these changes that um, Republican state legislatures are making uh, to access to the polls in their respective states. It hasn't penetrated, you know, Australian headlines at all, Gordon. Um, we're, we're very much focused on domestic use here, um, domestic politics, uh, COVID, what's happening in India. Um, the, you know, the, the fact we had a COVID case or two COVID cases here in Sydney yesterday. And I think there's been the, the quiet coming out of the US has meant that, that that sort of high level of attentiveness that Australians had to all things U.S. domestic politics has, has, has demonstrably waned. Um, <clears throat> but if I would identify one thing that I think has got really potentially profound long-term consequences, and frankly, it has ethical and, and moral and normative consequences as well, it would be um, this reaction to the election loss among um, Republican state legislatures to like frankly, what is a, 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 an undemocratic step to um, to limit access uh, to the polls, to tighten that up in the absence of any compelling evidence uh, at all of, of, of fraud, uh, that there's a problem. The problem is that as the electorate grows, Republicans, at least as they're currently configured, uh, struggle to win elections in places they've become used to winning them. The solution, not to change the message, but to change the electorate uh, through, through draconian frankly, measures uh, limiting access to the polls. It cuts against the grain, Gordon, as well. You know, having spent a lot of time in Australia and now dual national yourself, um, in Australia, um, we go the other way. Uh, there's a bipartisan consensus uh, around um, uh, compulsory turnout. Uh, we have elections on a Saturday. 
because Wild. it's compulsory. Yeah, you're right, Elise. We make it to me. Really, I'm just like, what? <laughs> I know. We make it really easy to vote because it's compulsory, right, to do so. Um, California has a regime of um, if you move in state, um, your voter registration will will almost surely follow you around. Um, if you you know, particularly if you change your uh, driver's license or um, things like that in state. Um, and, and, but that is increasingly the norm um, across state borders as well in, in Australia. So, so we're sort of the other way. So it's very striking uh, to Australian ears to hear this, that this is what's going on. And, and moreover, it sort of wedges Australian conservatives from their conservative presence in the US, as it were, because no Australian conservative, it's absolutely, a, 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 there's almost no one on the right of Australian politics that thinks compulsory voting, compulsory turnout is a problem. Every now and then that services in Australian political debate. Um, but it's um, sort of not an issue at the moment. But at least I want to ask about the quiet. And that is, um, how is it in your view that Trump has this pull still on the party, given that he's been taken off social media? That's one thing from this distance here in Australia. I don't have a great read on you take Trump away from the social media platforms. Uh, he's not on TV, at least as not as much as I'm seeing. Maybe he's doing more on Fox or something. Do you have a theory as to why five months past January now, we're into May, this, he, he continues to have this amazing hold over, over, uh, over the base of the Republican Party? Well, the simple, the pithy answer, I suppose, is that because they don't believe he lost the election. Right? I mean, he, he's not getting attention, but the base remains enamored of him because they believe that he is, uh, should be the president still, right? I mean, that's not just true of QAnon. It's true of people like Kevin McCarthy, um, the House minority leader who did not vote to certify the election results, um, much like much of the Republicans in the House. So unless Donald Trump is indicted, which is a possibility. I mean, there are criminal um, or civil, criminal and civil cases getting built against him or somehow incapacitated. I can't imagine a scenario where he, Trump doesn't run again or try to run again or at least flirt with running again in 2024. He um, loves to stay in the news. And the best way to stay in the news for Donald Trump is to flirt with running for president, right? Um, it helps him if he does face any sort of prosecution to say that it's a political prosecution. Um, so even if the next presidential nominee in the United States isn't Donald Trump, whoever the next nominee um, out of the Republican Party is, will talk like Trump and act like Trump and kind of be like Trump because no one will speak up uh, for the truth, right? It's pretty astounding that um, the Republican Party today sort of doesn't have or the future of the Republican Party doesn't really have a moral center uh, and there's no <laughs> counter argument against Trump. I'm still rather uh, alarmed by this um, because I, I suppose, you know, in my late thirties, I came up in a time where there was still objective, there were still kind of collective facts that we all agreed yeah. on. And that has completely, I mean, it's bifurcated and it's really difficult to sort of operate in this, environment, both as a journalist, but also as an American who who is from flyover country, as they call it, you know, mm -hmm. places like Missouri, the state where I was born, and then deep red Texas, uh, where not only is there not a shared belief in kind of political realities, but there was there's a real kind of um, disbelief in facts like science. And so, you know, anti-maskers in, in America are also astounding. And I think that's going to keep us from being able to reach herd immunity. I think I probably have a slightly less charitable take than you, Elise, on this. And where your description of, you know, they continue to support Trump because they believe you won the election might apply to, you know, the, the viewership of, of Sean Hannity's show or Tucker Carlson's show, uh, out in the patients, but the, the elected officials themselves uh, are, at least in my view, putting themselves in a much less favorable light today. So when you talk with, about people like Kevin McCarthy and the rest of the Republican House leadership who on, on January 6th and 7th and 8th all clearly, you know, had stated that Trump had lost the election, that he'd gone too far, and that the, the, the insurrection and the attack on the U.S. Capitol stepped too far, and one by one themselves kind of went back into it. And today, 
you know, some of the analysis of what's happening to Liz Cheney, and, and for those of our viewers who don't know this, Liz Cheney is currently third in leadership of, of the minority in the House, the Republican leadership. Uh, and by all accounts, by early next week, she's likely to lose that position. She will be voted out uh, because not only do the other members of the Republican House leadership, but the rank and file are all deeply embarrassed by her because her willingness to stand up and call uh, Trump's continued allegations that the election was stolen the big lie and to, to, to directly call him out puts them in a very unfavorable light because they've gone the other direction. Whereas I'm not, I don't think that Kevin McCarthy believes that the election was stolen. They know full well, this is, a, this is more of a political tool on their part. And this is where I'm going back to your question, Simon. Maybe I'll put your own question back to you because I, I actually still don't, I don't, I, I, I still don't get, you know, how they, they, they are not, is it just, is it pure cowardice? Is it, is it a, a political calculation where they recognize the continuing pull of the media means that they can't afford to cross Trump? But you would think that there would be more of them trying to do what Liz Cheney is doing, which Mitch McConnell has done with, with some hesitancy, what, what Mitt Romney is doing. Is it just that they tried it and the cost was too, too painful early on, and so they backed away? What, what's the explanation there? I'll give a glib answer and then quickly see if Elisa's got to be on this, Gordon. The glib answer is your cousin, <laughs> Jeff Blake. Um, um, yeah, so Elise, uh, <laughs> Gordon. A caution, there's Gordon's, a cautionary tale there, right? <laughs> well, you are not rewarded, right? As a Republican, you are not rewarded by your constituents yeah. for standing up against this guy or standing up punished. to this guy. You are and it's so funny, it, the, the irony here is that there is such loyalty among the Republican base to Donald Trump, who might be the most disloyal person in public life ever. Like who, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the paradox here is astounding to me. Uh, for me, one of the most, again, sad things this week is to see you know Mike Pence come out this week trying to have his own personal emergence uh, and give his speech and remaining as close as possible can to Trump. And meanwhile, the same day, Trump continues to hammer Mike Pence. <laughs> it, it is an interesting, hey, well, look, we could go on far too long on, on that topic. I actually <laughs> want to take it in, in a slightly more analytical level. Let's go back to this question of the ongoing tension between efforts to suppress the vote uh, and tremendous efforts to kind of mobilize and get out the vote. because. Voter suppression is not new in the United States. Uh, Simon, you yourself have, have done a lot of research and writing on, on gerrymandering and testified uh, on court, court cases on that front. Uh, so that's been happening for a long time. This seems to be a little bit different. You know, Republicans took over a lot of state houses back in 2010. Uh, now I think there's no fewer than 29 states that are passing efforts that specifically make it harder to vote, make it harder for minorities to vote, make it harder for working class to vote, make it harder to vote on Sundays, et cetera. And there's a tension between that effort uh, and the, the effort of others like Stacey Abrams in Georgia to turn out historic numbers of votes to turn states kind of early. Uh, at least let's go back to you to start on that process. How do you see that, that long-term tension between these two efforts that, that are characterizing American politics today? I think when I speak to international audiences, one thing that really blows people's minds, um, it, or in, especially when I speak to other sort of democracies, is that, and this is really important foundationally in, in terms of framing this conversation, is that America uh, does not have proportional representation. Um, rural states with smaller populations have two senators, but California and New York, which are giant states, also have two senators each. And so, um, and, and rural areas tend to be more conservative and tend to vote more conservative and, and that polarization has widened. And so um, what we've seen over the last 10, 20 years is uh, these, the American politics, so our legislature and our electeds being far more to the right and far more conservative than the American populace at large, right? And so, um, and that tension is really fascinating. So for Republicans in order, uh, for Republicans to uh, maintain power and their positions of power, um, they have to essentially make it harder and harder for pe people to vote and for more dense places, uh, urban areas, um, where, where we're more politically liberal um, to be less represented or not represented fairly. And that's where gerrymandering come in, comes in. Um, 
districts in all US states are drawn by state legislatures based on uh, the census, which comes out every 10 years. And so we are now in 20, we're now following the 2020 census. And so state legislatures, which happen to be majority of them are controlled by Republicans are going and most of them don't have bipartisan redistricting commissions that draw these lines. And so in most cases, Republicans in state legislatures, and a lot of them are, you know, usually they're, they're not politicians, like, um, it's not their day job to really be governing, like governing is not their day job. They'll be, you know, pig farmers from West Texas or just very sort of politically motivated um, uh, people who will then get to draw lines and decide the, the very borders under which uh, members of Congress are going to be able, or among members of Congress represent, right? And so we are headed into that. And um, due to redistricting alone, uh, Democrats are likely to lose the next midterm election in 2022, because um, they are currently holding a lot of districts that uh, where a lot of Republican voters dwell, and um, Biden overperformed in some areas. So we are kind of head, that is the backdrop of all of this. Well, then, and then enter the Southern states that are making it more difficult to vote. They are, they are um, passing, it's not, not just not compulsory to vote in the United States, right? Yeah. They actively make it hard. They are closing polls early. They are um, ending early voting uh, in some places or starting early voting a day or two later. Uh, and they're playing at the margins here that make a huge difference in close elections. And so you have that going on. On the flip side, um, there is something called HR1 uh, right now, which is a huge omnibus um, voter reform or vo voting. It's called the John Lewis for the People Act. And it, there's no chance that it will pass because it includes <laughs> campaign finance reform and all sorts of really uh, sweeping changes that would allow the federal government to come in and make it much easier to vote. <laughs> Um, but without some sort of reform, then we are headed into a really dangerous situation in which, you know, because of so much suppression going on in, in red states, uh, there are margins that are going to be impossible for even the ground game like Stacey Abrams' successful effort in Georgia to overcome. Well, Simon, as a, you know, a political scientist, you'll understand that we can get distracted by the day-to-day -day opinion polls that show Biden doing quite well, you know, 65% approval on, on some issues. And yet what Elise has just described seems to be the underlying ground game, which is going to have a, a far heavier impact in 2022. You give us your prognosis for how is this playing out between now and, uh, and the next midterm elections, which are strangely just 18 months away? Yeah. Um, well, what plays out between now and then, I think, is oh, look, what can I think the Democrats are probably are staring a reality in the face, and that is they are likely to lose both chambers um, in in the midterm. So, what can they get done now? And and for Biden in particular, Gordon and Elise, I, I'd be you know he was there during Obama's first two years as vice president, um, and I think. You know, the conventional wisdom from Democrats that I talk to is that, um, look, the lesson of 29-2010 and Democrats losing control of Congress in the 2010 midterms uh, and everybody going, well, it's because um, uh, Obamacare was so wildly unpopular. A lot of Democrats, the takeout is, well, damn, if we were going to lose the House on the back of that that. We, we shouldn't have tried to compromise at all. Go hard while you can. Um, yeah. and, and if you end up losing, you know, you know, if we'd actually got the policy we really wanted, we might have been, we might have not had the, you know, we got a bad political outcome because we got a bad policy outcome is, is sort of one version of it. I don't know about that. Um, but, um, but it's certainly uh, something that I think Democrats will be mindful of. Um, what can they get done that doesn't need 60 votes in the Senate? Um, and that's why um, this HR1 is, you know, there's no way no HR1, way. yeah, you can't consider HR1 a budget bill and get it done through reconciliation. So HR1 needs 60 votes. So that's, that's gone. But how about this infrastructure bill? 
Um, how about other things like that? What can we get done where we'll take advantage of the fact that we might be able to Senate parliamentarian turns out to be the most powerful person in America right now, <laughs> making these decisions about what's a budget bill or what's not, what only needs 50 votes in the Senate. So I think Democrats uh, are looking at this window they've got now to um, not let, you know, compromise policy and, and the mediocre political results that it produces. If we're going to lose, go out guns blazing, they're probably going to lose, right? So, so that's it. They're not lining up to like lemmings to jump off a cliff. I think you'll find moderate Democrats, you know, really putting some handbrakes. And we've already seen that. Manchin didn't want the minimum wage uh, piece in the COVID recovery legislation that got, that got taken down. We'll see where they land on corporate tax rates uh, to pay for the infrastructure stuff that, that's on the table as well. But I think, you know, between now and the election, Gordon, um, in anticipation of just how narrow those margins are, given what's coming down the pike with gerrymandering, given what's coming down the pike with restricted ballot access, but given what ordinarily happens in a midterm where turnout goes down, it's probably not going to be good for Dems. Um, if given all that, go go hard, frankly. And, and that's why these billions of dollars and that incredibly ambitious uh, climate plan um, and, and a lot of spending, um, lots of carrots, not a lot of climate sticks. You know, they're not going to legislate uh, a carbon price. But um, taking advantage of the COVID crisis to really make some progress on some big and frankly long overdue uh, infrastructure spending and infrastructure plus, plus, plus spending uh, in the US. Well, well, yeah, we should point out that the president's party, historically, the president's party um, has only won the midterm following the election of that president um, three times in American history. And yeah. one was the second term uh, or the, uh, the re-election of Bill Clinton. The other one was George H or George W. Bush following 9-11. And then before that, it was FDR. So um it's not likely that the Democrats can hold on to things. And Although there, there is some hope for Democrats in that if you look at 1998, oh, is there? <laughs> in 1998 for the, for okay. the side, they won largely on, on the, the back of what was perceived to be Republican overreach, right? In terms of their response. But hey, look, let's, this segue, uh, Simon's focus on, on, you know, Democrats having learn the lesson of, of the early part of the Obama administration, 2009, 2010, deciding to go hard, gives us a perfect chance to kind of look at the 100-day mark. Um, you know, last Thursday, it marked 100 days in, in, in the Biden administration. Uh, and while obviously this is nothing like FDR, right? And that's our traditional, you know, measuring piece. FDR passed, what, 77 laws, signed them into law, 74 different executive actions, and fundamentally remade the American economy. And yet, by most comparisons, you know, the Biden first 100 days was pretty remarkable in his own term. Only 11 bills signed into law, but among those 11 bills was a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And I always remind our Australian audiences to, to, to give that some context. Our entire gross domestic product for a year is $1.4 trillion. So $1.9 trillion package is not jump change here in terms of the process. Um, let's start with you again, Lise. Uh, the 100-day mark, and might, why don't we wrap into that, uh, the, the, the speech to the joint session of Congress. Uh, it, it has been a different 100 days. You use the term quiet, but there's been more than, than a little happening during that period of quiet as well. What's your assessment? No, and I think that's actually part of the Biden strategy, right, to make little noise, but while passing these thir a 13-figure a stimulus. There's 160 million relief checks that have already gone out to the American people. 1.3 million jobs were created since January 25th. Um, they opened up a special enrollment period for healthcare for Obamacare, and that led to a lot more signups. And then most crucially in 2021, uh, the Biden administration over-delivered on vaccine rollout because in mid-January, there was talk that at the rate that the Trump administration was going with vaccine rollouts, that it was going to take seven years for us to have 70% of the population <laughs> vaccinated. And so what, what happened when Biden came in was they discovered that the federal program to um, deliver vaccines kind of stopped at the last mile. Like 
it was sort of, you know, like when aid goes into, for instance, in this case, India, but then it gets stuck like at the airports or at the ports. And so, uh, and then it was left to local municipalities, counties to figure out how to actually get shots and arms. And so the Biden administration was very impressive in having no playbook, having to start with zero on that last mile and get those, uh, get people jabbed. And so that's kind of what's going to stand out for me uh, in terms of the first hundred days. And we should point out that the hundred days is a rather arbitrary number. You know, um, it's arbitrary, but it's a nice round number. Um, But in a lot of ways, it was really impressive because this super popular $2 trillion rescue plan was passed. And I think if it were President Obama, you know, I remember the days of President Obama's uh, um, leadership, anytime any sort of budget bill had to get passed or even just balancing or trying to, you know, fund the government, the government would shut down, you know, or there seemed like there was a steady drumbeat of that. And so not having um, major political fights capture our attention in passing this $2 trillion rescue plan is pretty impressive. Biden also introduced um, plans for pretty sweeping uh, immigration reform and this infrastructure bill or infrastructure investment Um, that Simon talked about. And so, yeah, a lot has actually happened while Biden himself has made very little noise and has gotten very little coverage compared to Trump. Um, So if we look at the first 100 days sort of in and of itself, he knocked it out of the park, right? But another way to look at it is how well this 100 days situates him for the next 100 days and for the rest of um, his term and really for the next two years, because we are sort of counting the midterms as a point where the the opportunity for a lot of sweeping legislation is going to be lost. Um, I think that's more of an open question because this filibuster in the Senate remains. And I assume that the audience knows that (laughs) we have this arcane (laughs) filibuster in the U.S. Senate, too. So, like, uh, why don't I just toss it over to you there, Simon, to sort of build on sure. this, like the, the question of how the 100 days uh, success, the, fir- the success of the first 100 days situates Biden for governing ahead, yeah. in the months yeah. ahead. Um, a, a couple of things about that. Um, I think that's absolutely the question to ask about the 100 days. It's about um, how much of that political capital you come to office with, particularly when you come to office in, in times of crisis, how have you let that like sand slip through your hands or how have you used to consolidate and, and really cement um, a platform for future political success? And I think it's more the latter, right? Uh, it, it's been a very skilled operation, um, both politically, but now I think is the key point, Elise and, and Gordon, is that um, the state has demonstrated it can do things competently <laughs> again. And it's, I think, again, something that Democrats were talking a lot about why they have to get this right. Because um, to sort of put up on the wall a, a, a compelling counter argument, what's been a mantra of, you know, kind of the neoliberal and, and particularly since Reagan, that government wasn't solution, government was the problem. Sort of that as a as a element of American political thinking, brought brought into the American mainstream through from the Goldwater tradition of republicanism becoming mainstream under Reagan. Um, I think this hundred days, and particularly the COVID uh, relief package, and and the knocking it out of the park to use your metaphor on on the on the uh, immunization program vaccination program, has demonstrated the American state is capable of doing things right when it's run by people of goodwill and people of, of competence, uh, number one. The, the second thing I'd, I'd, I'd point to is the administration itself. Um, we, we focus a lot on this here at the US Study Center. We've got a piece of research coming out by, um, by um, our, our, our researchers um, next week. Um, and one of the highlights is I read the draft and, and, and you try to abstract away from the, the details of who's who and what's the big picture here. The big picture is diversity does not mean you are compromising on experience and competence. It's a pretty amazing team uh, that Biden has built. He kept true to his campaign promise on, a, on, a, on an administration that would look like America. And, and thus far, I think the 100 days, the, the, the runs on the board 
to use a cricket metaphor there now, <laughs> the runs on the board uh, sort of have cemented, uh, I think, something he, he really wanted to, to, to show the world uh, is that you don't have to compromise on competence and experience to, in order to build a diverse, a demographically diverse uh, group. And, and the number of women and people of colour in senior positions in the administration is setting all sorts of records and something I think we don't give enough attention to, I, I think, at least here in Australia. And finally, I'll come to the speech to Congress the other night. Above all, I think I was so pleased to hear these words. Uh, Biden is trying not just to bring the country back from COVID, but to galvanize it with a sense of purpose and connecting domestic policy to foreign policy. And that is that line from the speech that the United States is engaged in nothing less than a contest for the 21st century. Um, I think I go back, I don't think we go back to FDR, but I'd go back to Johnson or maybe to Eisenhower. Um, I think are the presidencies I'm seeing the most parallels with where the state is going to lead major, major initiatives, not just the COVID recovery, but building out from that. How is the United States going to compete with China? How is the United States going to lead the world's democracies to show that democracy is not an idea whose time has passed, that, that it is still the best way of organizing societies around the world, uh, that they can overcome their internal differences, turn that diversity into a strength and, 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 and lead the world as it faces its greatest challenges, climate change uh, being chief among them. That I found really empowering and galvanizing and, and, I, and I kind of commend it to Australian listeners um, I, I haven't heard an articulation of national purpose like that uh, from a U.S. president in a long, long time. Uh, and I was so pleased to hear old Uncle Joe Biden, uh, uh, an old white guy in his late 70s, who clearly is reaching back, I think, to that sense of American greatness that he grew up in in the shadow of World War II through the Cold War years. Um, um, part of America being back is America being up for that contest. And I was... I was I, I was really particularly sort of energized, frankly, by, by that part of the Thank you, Simon. Right I want to, in a minute, take the conversation into foreign policy, because there's a lot there to discuss as well. But before we leave COVID, I think it's probably useful to remember that, you know, in January, before the inauguration, there was a clear assumption that the Biden administration policy was rightly COVID, COVID, COVID. They had to get it right. Uh, we're now in a situation where the United States has administered uh, it, uh, vaccines, at least one dose to over 150 million people in just over three months. 55% uh, of the eligible population in, uh, in vaccinated. Uh, I think 52 are near 48, I guess it is, uh, of, of the overall population. So just a remarkable accomplishment. But there's also some suggestion that, that the hard part is yet to come. That, that there is you know, a wide pocket of, of, uh, of, of skepticism. There's actually a at a political party, uh, 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 an entire portion of the U.S. media that's actively preaching against vaccines, uh, and, and so a growing concern that the U.S. won't be able to hit, the, you know, the bigger targets. You know, the 70 percent, 80 percent they need to get to get to herd immunity. Uh, and so, despite the success of the first hundred days, the hard part is yet to come. Elise, you're, you're sitting in, in a state that's probably different than your home state of Missouri or your, your, where you grew up in Texas. Can, can you give us a view of how this is breaking down the U.S. in terms of states and parties? Yeah, the point that we're at with vaccination right now in the United States and the overall vaccination program is now we are beginning to see now the, the places where people were lining up for mass vaccinations like Dodger Stadium here in Los Angeles, they are shutting down. They are um, because there isn't that demand anymore. So there's softer mm -hmm. demand and then there's access problems in places, um, rural places um, and poorer places in, a, in the United States. And so, and that's along the US-Mexico border, for example, and more remote um, states, the Dakotas. And so uh, the Biden administration is now going to face kind of the demand problem and the access problem at the same time. I think there's a lot that can be done with the access problem by just getting vaccine to doctors, like local doctors, country doctors, so that they are available at doctor's offices and then doctor's offices and the doctors and pharmacists that have individual relationships with patients um, can say, yeah, you know, like, this is a good idea. Would you like to have a vaccine when you're there for your annual checkup? 
um, messaging wise, because you are running into more vaccine skepticism, there's people sort of on the fence and, you know, the behavioral economists and behavioral psychologists say that it doesn't work just to tell people just go vote. They won't do that. Right. Um, and so you can't kind of say to folks, just get a shot in the arm, just get jabbed if they already have some resistance or hesitancy. And so the Biden administration, knowing that from what I've read, is approaching it as like, hey, you know, I understand why you might have some hesitancy and have some questions, you know, but talk to your doctor about it, talk to pharmacists about it. And so there is kind of an active messaging campaign going on now that's informed by some behavioral science, right, to try and um, get the folks who are on the fence uh, to be persuaded. And then on the other end, on the access problem, just to get that vaccine in all the places to make it easy to get into people's arms. So yeah, it's going to be a slower, I think we're going to see a plateau. Um, but thankfully, this, the first, you know, 50% of the population was able to get vaccinated fast enough such that there haven't been these multiple variants, as we've seen in India, because one of the issues that was that we were in this race against time right it was mm. it was either get the vaccine in these arms as 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 quickly as possible or these variants are going to continue to multiply and quadruple and so or, or wind up in, and then continue to spread and spread very easily as we're seeing in this breathtakingly horrifying situation in india um so yeah i mean i i from my vantage point am pretty hopeful about it overall gordon i am um took the opportunity this week to watch the Oscar-winning movie uh, Nomadland, the Chloe Zhao. Right, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie. It's not necessarily a beautiful portrait of America. I mean, it, it is the, the lost and the forgotten, the broken people all throughout the country. And you just take that movie and then figure out how would you get vaccines to those people. It gives you an idea of the, the scope of the challenge. Simon, obviously, this has been a very different problem from, from an Australian perspective. I know you and your team have done quite a few uh, you know, events looking at kind of the way the U.S. and Australia have had responded to this. Any insights you have on the remaining challenge in the U.S. on, on COVID? Uh, no, I'm going to defer to Elise on, on, on that, Gordon. It, it's, it is interesting, though. We watch the numbers really carefully and watching that, that plateauing in... Um, in, in the in the numbers of people getting vaccinations and watching it like so many things in America these days map onto underlying political preferences as well. Um, the good news for Elise is that she's probably living around a, a population there in in Los Angeles and California more broadly um, uh, that that is you know where the vaccination take rate is is, is probably among the highest in the country. Um, but um, you know you wonder. Um, about those places in, in in Texas. I also wonder, Gordon, about you know how many people out there are left you know um, to get COVID um, at this point. And and the other thing is just that the issue of the variants came up. It's a huge source of uncertainty for everybody right now, um, gnawing away at us. Just sort of the anxieties that this thing has provoked globally, um, and. You know, we're not out of you know, strong sense. We're not out of the woods yet, despite you know the really great news about the vaccination rate in the U.S. and the and the way that you know our our policies here in Australia are essentially sealing off the country from the rest of the world. Have actually kept Australia uh, largely, you know, relatively speaking, you might say COVID-free. Um, um, to, to you know, it's not much of an exaggeration no. to say that. But but just where we are with these variants, Gordon and you know, your centre out there in Perth with your, your close focus on, on India, you guys have more visibility on that than the, than the threats that that might be posing to the world. Uh, it, it really has been a sobering couple of weeks, uh, just in terms of the long term on this. Um, I have to confess, six months ago, I perceived Australia as having a, a, a really remarkable window of opportunity to steal a march on our American friends, our British friends, or European friends, and that uh, we were coming out of the first year of the pandemic, having a reputation for being well-governed, efficient, healthy, safe, great medical care, et cetera. Um, and, and that whether it's for students or tourists or investment, that we would be the go-to place. And unfortunately, our model has required us to have a international messaging that says we're closed. 
and, and I've just seen in the last month, you know, the number of tourists returning to the United States, the number of students returning to the United States, it's just kind of skyrocketing. And so in contrast to being a window of opportunity, we might find ourselves trapped in our own beautiful bubble. Uh, and, and, and meanwhile, countries like the United States might steal ahead. And Lisa, obviously you've given a lot of thought of this from your international kind of views on this as well. Yeah, I just, you know, th there's one point that I want to make that we should really think about and is placing the responsibility in the, in the hands of countries like America and countries like Australia. I mean, watching India, obviously Modi's failed leadership here is breathtaking and allowing those massive religious rallies and now censoring critics. And then the state of journalism is very bad in India in terms of being um, able to freely report. Uh, obviously so much aid from the developed world is going into India now, but gosh, Modi really, you used a cricket analogy, Simon. I'm going to use an American <laughs> football analogy. He really spiked yeah. the football at the 20 yard line. You know, um, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And we should, of course, do anything we can to help. Um, but I do not think, the point I want to make is that I don't think it's morally sustainable to have a globe in which majority white countries um, in the world where everybody's just kind of hanging out and back to normal, like, you know, California, um, and then other parts of the world with countries that are not majority white isn't, you know, and they aren't back to normal, right? That's not okay. And um, so I think globally, we, I know there's something called COVAX, right? Where there's more architecture and systemization around who's getting vaccines and who isn't, but it should not be the like uh, the responsibility or the burden really of any one country like America to, to choose who we give vaccines to, which is what's been kind of happening out of the gate because the patents have been, you know, American companies, Pfizer and Moderna. And so that, I just think there's really gotta be a global comprehensive plan, oh. uh, more architecture around this. The and announcement the Biden we, team should be stepping back and it should yeah. be really more of a global, a, a multilateral institution. <laughs> So Elise, you're spot on on this. And this is where the announcement yesterday from Catherine Tai, who's the US Trade Representative, and those who've done anything with the US Trade Representative know that they are the, the high priests of intellectual property rights and they will defend it down to the, <laughs> the, 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 the tiniest detail in yeah, those and trade agreements. It's and yet, too much, right. She came out uh, and, and on behalf of the Biden administration announced this plan to kind of to remove patents from the COVID vaccines uh, and, and basically shamed the European Union into agreeing so that's a very important step, and it's something that, you know, let's just say we would not have expected, you know, a year ago under a, a kind of an America first approach to the world. And that gives me a great transition. We've only got about 10 minutes left <laughs> into foreign policy. Uh, we've gone from an era of America first to a full-throated articulation of alliance first without a lot of domestic pushback. Uh, uh, one of our colleagues, James Bowen, who's watching, asked me uh, to, to ask the question, um, uh, about how the ongoing partisan divide we talked to about budgets in the next 100 days is impacting foreign policy. Uh, is that going to impact the U.S. commitment to, to allies, alliances? Well, let's just start. Big picture, Elise, you spent a long time in Korea and Japan. Um, uh, you, you've kind of seen firsthand some of the impacts of an America first approach on alliance relationships, particularly <laughs> in our region, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, yeah. How is the Biden administration approach looking to you on that front? And then we'll go to you, Simon. Well, I think overall, you know, as we've seen Blinken and um, other members of the State Department travel the world, it's sort of like America's back, you know, and diplomacy's back. And uh, <laughs> except with regard to China, where relations are as sour as I've ever seen them in my life. Right. And I was born in 1982. So that makes sense. Um, and. I would say overall, my big takeaway after repatriating to the United States about three years ago, minus one year of COVID in which I was not engaged with the rest of the world really at all. Um, <laughs> so my two years of living in the United States as an American again is that Americans like shockingly, shockingly disregard international news and international politics. Like it is, it is so myopic or myopic. It is like stunning how little international news diet I get anymore. And um, so I guess it, even as somebody who was so steeped in Korea and Japan and just Northeast Asia in general, I would say I 
because there haven't, because it's been the, the work of diplomacy and not um, a lot of flare-ups or pageant or the, these kinds of massive summits that attention-seeking summits that Donald Trump was trying to get with um, Kim Jong-un, I've paid very little attention to it, honestly. And it's, um, again, it's also, I guess, on the same theme of kind of quiet, more quiet under the Biden administration. Though I do worry about some some um, flashpoints to come, like Taiwan, for example, uh, which is more in the news lately. Simon, Simon your team has given a lot of thought to this, obviously. Um, you know, your, your take first on the first 100 days shifts in American foreign policy. Um, uh, but what are the big issues that we ought to be paying attention to in terms of going back to James's question, how is domestic politics in the U.S. going to impact foreign policy going forward? Yeah, well, the, the, the couple of things to say, Gordon. One is there's the very top of the tree, right? The statements by Biden and Blinken, uh, and Blinken in particular doing an extremely articulate job of connecting the Biden's domestic policy priorities uh, to uh, projections of American strength abroad, that it begins at home, build back better as a foundation, therefore, for, on which to then uh, uh, project American power and influence. And remember Biden's magic phrase that, that, that I'm sure every member of the administration knows, you know, uh, the power of our example, not the example of our power. And I, I think, so there's a soft power piece to that. Uh, but there's also a hard power piece. And, and that's the piece where, taking a good hard look at. The Biden's defense DOD budget request wasn't as big a cut, right? No one, you know, and it's sort of essentially, you know, it's more or less constant in real terms or not far from that. Um, for us though, the big question is less to do with the congressional battle around that. I think there's enough bipartisan support for understanding, hey, the world actually is, is kind of a bit more dangerous than we might have been thinking earlier. Um, China's on the move clearly in, in technology. I think even the most um, dovish Democrat would accept that proposition. Um, and so there doesn't seem to be, I think, a lot of political opposition to the sense of, wow, the US really needs to get its act together in terms of shoring up you know, the things that have made it great as a, in, in a hard power sense so in, in the post-war era. Getting back to that, the, one of the real issues, Gordon, is something we're focused on, is that is the, the usual inter-service rivalries that happen inside DOD. How mm. much of that money will actually get committed to the innovation in American defense technology and the deployment, you know, from Australia's national interest in, in parts of the world far, far away from the American homeland, out this far away um, in Australia, in the region, um, and, and that's the question we're focused on. And the answer is, you know, we don't know. We will see. Um, it, it is nonetheless reassuring to see the enthusiasm with which they've gone at things like the Quad, that the Japanese prime minister um, was, the, was the first um, uh, big uh, head of government to head of government um, meeting that Biden uh, took, um, um, that, that Blinken and, and Austin uh, did the North Asia sweep um, very early on, um, all that's reassuring. Um, but the proof of the pudding is, you know, those dollars and the kit that it buys and where it is deployed on the Earth's surface. Um, that that's one thing that we here at the U.S. Study Center are laser focused on and, and tracking very very closely. Uh, so one of, I, what, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so one of the things that struck me in the speech that uh, President Biden delivered to the Joint Session of Congress last week was saying, it's not enough to say America's back. We have got to demonstrate that America is staying back. Uh, and we're going to do that together with allies. So one of the things that the previous president just never understood is, is again, in addition to what you were saying, Simon, is not only is the, the, the strength of America and the strength of its example, but it's also in the networks that it built, right? It's alliances, the international mm -hmm. systems, the laws, the institutions, the standards and norms. That's where the real strength is. Uh, and so a, a unitary kind of America is, is, is great, America first kind of policy ignored what really made America more influential. And so that sheer recognition alone, base competence is probably encouraging. But I would note uh, that in contrast to the first 100 days, there's a lot, of, a lot of issues, at least mentioned the cross-straits relationship in Taiwan. You know, South China Sea is, continues to be an issue. 
an area that Lee's focused on for a long time. North Korea you know, has never been known to be quiet for too long, and there's some evidence of, of rumbling on that front, uh, you know, border issues on Ukraine. You know, uh, so there's just an awful lot of issues on the foreign policy front that uh, were not on the, the forefront in the first 100 days that are likely to be uh, in the weeks and months to come. Elise, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Um, and what was I going to say? Oh, actually, I was going to say because, yes, <laughs> now I'm back to it. I wanted to just to respond be, that in the 21st century now, I think it is so crucial that uh, governments really do pay attention to where they have opportunity for soft power instead of sort of hard military strength, right? And that goes back to my point about leadership in public health and leadership um, in getting out, out, getting us out of this pandemic because uh, America's R&D um, and European R&D really got us to these vaccines so quickly, but unless it's distributed evenly or distributed and, and distributed more quickly to the rest of the world, then we are squandering an opportunity for real leadership really and, and showing, not telling, mm -hmm. setting by example in, this, in the way that um, Biden is referring to. This is a huge opportunity and it shouldn't be spiked. Yeah, let me just quickly jump on that. I just think the attention given to India as a, as a, as a quad partner and as a, uh, you know, everybody, you know, waiting for India to emerge as a, as a critical counterweight by, by sheer dint of its size mm -hmm. uh, to, to China and the region. Well, you know, hell, what better way right. to earn the gratitude of, of generations of Indians and to, you know, swamp them with whatever, whatever we can get there. And, and we're talking a country of, you know, north of a billion people and population like sending a, a, a C-17 with some respirators ain't going to get it done. You know what I mean? Right. This needs to, I know we're taking care of our own populations first and I understand in democratic societies, you know, where you've got the threat of electoral sanction for failing to do that. But, but you know, the capacity that uh, exists for producing vaccine um, at scale, and if we can get it uh, in, into the Indian subcontinent, uh, um, as quickly as we possibly can. There's a really important geostrategic imperative for that as well. Simon, you're, you're spot on. And, and as I anticipated, uh, the hour went by <laughs> very quickly. Um, I, I would highlight one thing that uh, on the 12th of March or 13th of March here, there was a virtual you know, quad leaders meeting uh, between President Biden, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Prime Minister Modi in India, Prime Minister Suga in Japan, which I, I don't know has gotten a lot of coverage in, in domestic politics in the U.S., but which yeah. is really quite significant. To get something up that quickly in a new administration for the first mm -hmm. time ever, uh, and not only to, to, to have a joint statement that came out, but a specific agenda for cooperation on the areas that you've talked about, exactly. uh, obviously exactly. vaccines, you know, production and distribution, climate change, which I'm afraid we didn't get to today, no. uh, but also technology, 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 which we've touched on in that front. Uh, and then, again, Lisa, in your, 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 your realm, uh, quite a remarkable thing to get an op-ed from the leaders of India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, a joint op-ed in the Washington Post. How'd you like to be on the, the, the op-ed board approving that one coming in? <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> hey, look, uh, we're, we're really out of time. I just want to give a final word to both Elise and then finally to Simon. Um, uh, uh, the first 100 days went fast. Uh, and we, we, we've, we've talked about where, where we had a little bit of headspace to think about it. Uh, let's apply that headspace to the next 100 days. What, what, is, what is going to be the touchstones for you? We get to early August, you know, we're past the summer once. What, what should we be focused on? What are the key trends that you're observing? Uh, uh, what's going to be important in the next 100 days? At least we'll start with you and then we'll wrap up with Simon. I just think if the filibuster in the U.S. Senate remains in place, that so much ambition is going to be unmet. And right now, the big question is, we don't know the version of events that's going to play out, whether Biden is going to be an LBJ-like or an FDR-like figure with tons of transformative legislation, or will these past 100 days be the high watermark? So that's kind of my point about the 100 days. My point about the U.S. going forward is that we have a real future me problem because the, the fate of American democracies sort of, and, and the biggest issue for, for American democracy is the fate of American democracy. Like that is the biggest <laughs> issue in American politics. Well said. Well said. The system survived Trump, but he was clumsy, right? He had a lot of clumsy efforts to subvert the system, but that threat, the threat to the system is really far from over. 
Fantastic. Wow. Damon, last word to you. Hard to improve on that. Um, watch the infrastructure bill. Um, huge, hugely significant. If you thought 1.9 trillion was big, um, this thing's, uh, you know, this first digits are two. We'll see what gets through. Um, but, um, but I'm also watching very carefully, um, you know, what did Trump teach us? I'll, I'll just echo your point. Democracy is never, is never set and forget. Trump reminded us of that. And right now in real time, uh, down at the state level and below the fold from where Australian viewers at least uh, are watching, uh, there is an awful lot going on, as there kind of always is you know, in, in US politics about some, some very fundamental questions about the state of US democracy. Well, fantastic, Simon. Uh, uh, as always, it's a pleasure. We look forward to your hosting uh, this time next yeah. month. Uh, and Elise, Up on the top. <laughs> indeed. Thank you so much. Uh, we well, will you have a guess is... better than me? I mean, well, that's my point. I, 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 doubt, it. Top I this. doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's late in LA. Uh, for those of our, our viewers uh, who haven't been following Elise on on, on Twitter. Uh, or on, on TED Talks Daily Podcast. She's amazing. Just Google her. I think her Twitter handle is at least who, not Hugh, but W-H-O. Uh, uh, and it, you'll, you'll learn a lot. Thank you, Elise. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Look forward to next month. It was a pleasure. pleasure.